Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure to talk with Hans Noel, who is the author of Political Ideologies and Political Parties in America, a very interesting book, one of the few political science books without a colon in its title. Hans, how are you doing today? I'm doing just fine. Um, I, I, I really enjoyed the book. I, I think there's, there's uh, so much great stuff, both historical but also so contemporary. Before we get to the book, um, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your background, where you've been, uh, where you are now, what what projects fill up your your days. Uh, sure. Yeah. So I'm uh, I'm Hansel. I'm an associate professor of government at Georgetown University. Um, my PhD is from UCLA, um, and since I got the PhD, I spent a short bit of time with the Center for the Study of Democratic Politics at Princeton, um, and as a Robert Wood Johnson Scholar in Health Policy Research at the University of Michigan. Um, and uh, so I'm sort of bouncing around everywhere, but we finally managed to settle ourselves into a, a nice um, routine here in Georgetown. Um, and you know, now with this book finished, I'm sort of uh, working on all of the things that were, I was unable to get to that were uh, you know, uh, both spinoffs from the book um, and possibly new, uh, new projects. Um, as we'll see as we talk about the book, um, I'm sort of interested in ideology and why certain things are liberal uh, goals and certain things are conservative goals. And so I'm sort of interested now in a project about um, some health policy type issues, uh, temperance, drugs, uh, smoking, trans fats, um, all of which are things that um, the government tells you not to do because uh, they think it's bad for you. But sometimes it's conservatives who are more interested in saying no, and sometimes it's liberals that are more interested in some sort of working on a project on that. Yeah, I think after we talk, it'll be obvious why that project sounds like such a uh, nice follow-up to this. Um, uh, you know, the the you you provide us with a book title that really does uh, very clearly tell us what the book is about. That's not always the case. Um, but political ideologies and political parties. Let's just start there before we get to um, kind of what your take is. Maybe you could walk us through a little bit about what the casual observer, uh, how the casual observer defines these two terms, because it seems like. One of your arguments is that the conflation of these two um, is is problematic, but 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 understandable. So, um, why is there such overlap? Why why does the common person define these terms more similarly than you do in your book? I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that you know we don't have a large historical uh, sort of uh, sweep in the way we think about things, and so today, conservatives are pretty much Republicans, and Republicans are conservatives, and liberals are Democrats and Democrats are liberals. And there's some variation and there's some Republicans who are more conservative than others and some Democrats who are way more moderate than others or something like that. But generally speaking, they match. And so it's very easy for people to just say, okay, well, the Democrats are the party of liberals and the conservatives are the, are, have a party too and their party is Republicans. Um, and you don't actually to do too much violence to reality to talk about it that way, except that that hasn't, isn't where it's always been. Uh, there's been a period where you had parties uh, that had lots of liberals and conservatives in them both. Um, and so at least one common thing is that a lot of uh, people, including a lot of political scientists, um, tend to gloss over those distinctions. And, um, you know, I think 
for some projects, that doesn't matter. But I think for a lot of things, um, that obscures more than it illuminates. So let's talk definitionally. Um, what to you is, is ideology? And, and using that definition, what then is uh, political party? Well, how do you distinguish the two? Sure. Um, so I think the nice way to do it is to think about first the way in which they're both, they are similar things, right? So um, political parties and political ideologies are both, um, you know, sort of structures, institutions, forces in society that tell you who's on your side and who's not, right? So they tell you if you can ex- adopt an ideology or you join a party, who are your co- colleagues, who are the people who um, are your allies, and who are the people that you're fighting against. Um, but they're very different because they do so in very different ways. So an ideology um, tells you who's on your side and who's not by um, telling you what you believe and say these are the things that we care about, the actual issues um, and the issue positions that we care about. And so your allies are the people who agree with you on these things. And that happens through actually persuading you. Um, maybe not all the way down, like most people who are liberals or conservatives would say, well, you know, I'm liberal on this but not on everything. And uh, you know, I disagree on, you know, affirmative uh, action or I disagree on unions or some different thing. Um, and so, but generally speaking, ideology persuades you and you believe this package of things. And so then that's why, how you know who's on your side because these are people who agree and believe the same things. Parties, on the other hand, um, organize who is your who are your allies by actually telling you this person is your ally. And you're going to fight for the same things and take the same positions on issues, but only because you've decided that you're both on the same side. And this might be, you know, eventually you might internalize that and really believe, you know, whatever is good for the Democrats is always good for me and and hold that position. But it's going to be something that's going to be sort of built out of this need for a coalition. And so it comes much more from uh, the strategic decisions of um, particularly um, party leaders to say we need to stick together in order to form a united front. Yeah, you know this. While your your approach is very different, uh, people have long been interested in how ideology is formed. Uh, you note in the book that the the method used to analyze ideology is very different. The the typical approach is very different from your approach. So if you could just briefly give us sort of what is the the traditional approach to measuring ideology and 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 how is your approach then novel. Um, so I think there's, there's sort of two things that are commonly done to major ideology, um, and it actually gets at something that, you know, possibly is, is, is missing in the way that I was defining ideology a second ago. Because when I was talking, you know, I just talked about, like, you and what, what does ideology do for you. But really when I'm saying this, I'm thinking about someone who is ideological or who is uh, a sort of committed partisan, which for the most part is political elites. And so um, I'm talking about um, the people who we associate with, you know, leaders in the liberal or, com- or conservative community and so forth. These are political elites and, and um, they're engaged and they know a lot about issues and so forth. By contrast, when we go to major ideology, we typically say, OK, well, I want to understand what's happening in, um, you know, what, what, what do people believe of ordinary voters? And so we'll go to a, um, a survey. We ask people a bunch of questions. Maybe we ask them, do you consider yourself liberal or conservative? We ask them what they think about some issues. And then we try to find patterns there in the ordinary citizens who are um, maybe a little bit ideological. And the problem with that is that most citizens aren't very ideological. And we've known for a very long time that most citizens are not very ideological. But we still uh, go there to look for for evidence of them because that's where we have um, – you know, that's where we have these big, large, large amounts of data that we could do this work with. Um, and so I like to think of it in the analogy that I use in the book is to think about how, um, you know, ideology is like water. And studying ordinary voters is like studying a block of wood that's been immersed in that water. 
right? So ideology tries to permeate most citizens, but most people, you know, they're not, they don't, most people are not as interested in politics as you or I or probably the listeners to this podcast. Most people have other things to do with their lives. And so they don't absorb all this stuff and they're not as completely sort of penetrated by the, by the water, by the ideology. And if you carve up that piece of wood, you might see some evidence of water, but it's not the same as the actual ideology, which is not created and, and emerging from ordinary citizens. It almost can't be because most ordinary citizens are not ideological, but it comes from someplace else. And I would say among, from political thinkers um, and uh, ideologues who are sort of actively trying to decide what is it that we liberals or we conservatives uh, stand for. So this takes us to the, the, the data that you collect. Um, you create a, a sort of a new data set that, that offers some um, real interesting analytical uh, le- uh, leverage points into to answering the questions in your book. So so what did you measure? Who were you who were you measuring if you were not measuring the individual, uh, the, the, the individual citizen? Who was it? Who was the target and who did you who did you capture information about? Well, so I think that ideology is being shaped by um, sort of a elite political discourse or conversation. Um, and that conversation stretches all the way from, you know, people in, uh, in academic uh, settings. So I think that um, political theorists, for instance, um, our colleagues in political theory part of um, uh, our departments are doing some work on ideology. They're describing what do we think uh, matters and they're shaping what means to be conservative, what it means to be liberal, what it means to be something else in, in many cases. Um, all the way down to uh, people who are basically doing the same job, only perhaps with less uh, rigor and, and uh, thought, um, that who are just you know saying political opinions and advancing those political opinions. Um, people like uh, you know Michael Moore, Rush Limbaugh, or something. Um, so that's the range of people who I think are doing this work, that's creating this ideology. Um, the political uh, theorists are fairly sophisticated and don't have very much reach. And the people like Moore and Limbaugh are probably not doing as much creative work as uh, people who are a little bit more uh, thoughtful. Um, and so the place that I went to look for it is, is sort of in um, magazines and newspapers that are ideological. So thinking today, I'm thinking about the Weekly Standard and the National Review and the New Republic and the Nation and American Spectator. Um, and also the op-ed pages of major uh, newspapers, the Washington Post and New York Times. And so that's where I went. I went and looked and found everything was written in those places. Uh, that's a huge set of, um, of writings, so I had to break it down, and I, I decided to look at 20-year intervals. So I start in um, 1850, and then 1850, and 1870, and 20-year intervals all the way to 1990. Um, look at everything that I can find in those sources for that one calendar year, um, and that's where I'm going to look for the same pattern that other scholars might look for uh, among ordinary voters. Yeah, and it's it's that that um, historical stretch that that is part of where the real strength of this book is the the um, ability to reach back into maybe not the far past but 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 you know in terms of the history of this country um, uh, far back into some of the, the earlier points um, and 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 it allows you to draw some interesting conclusions about change over time. You, you write in the book um, that the clear pattern is that in the 19th century. Ideology was not unidimensional, but it became increasingly so over the 20th century. I wonder, was this a surprise to you, and, and also what we can take away from this finding? Um, what, do we, what do we gather uh, about the past, and what do we know, know better about our, our current situation from this kind of finding that, that you reach? 
it was a little bit of a surprise. Um, and so the other natural place to look for evidence of this um, that people have done is to look at voting patterns in Congress. Um, and in Congress, uh, we see you know a lot of ideological polarization today, and we also saw a lot of you know polarization. Democrats of clearly against Republicans um, in the late 1800s too. So I kind of expected to see um, you know this strength, the degree to which the the ideology was sort of well defined by a unidimensional. Uh, liberal versus conservative or something else versus something else uh, pattern, I kind of expected to see it then as well. Um, of course, once you dig into that period and try to understand what's going on, the politics of it, it it's um, not so surprising. Um, while Congress was very well organized, um, uh, political leaders in Congress had to do a lot more work to make that happen because there were a lot more issues that were cross-cutting the underlying partisan cleavage. I mean, today, political leaders, you know, Boehner say, they have a lot of work trying to keep their backbenchers in line. But by and large, Republicans generally agree on policy goals. Some of them are more willing to compromise, but they're basically on the same side. Whereas in the late 1800s, uh, parties, um, Democrats and Republicans in the late 1800s, were, um, you know, included people who were from different parts of the country, and some of people had different attitudes about uh, silver and gold and have different attitudes about taxes and different attitudes about tariffs. Uh, and they managed to hold together a coalition, but there were these pretty important issues that were potentially splitting things apart. And so when you go outside of Congress to these thinkers, well, those other issues really do just split things apart. Um, and the progressive period is um, not so well organized at all. In fact, um, you know, as you dig into the thinking about progressive thinkers, you find out that you know, most uh, scholars of that period don't really think of there being a progressive movement at all, but lots of different progressive movements because different progressives didn't agree with each other about priorities or, or um, quite a bit of, uh, of, of the sort of reasons for their um, reforms. Now, one of the terms you haven't used yet is, is the, the term polarization. I wonder if you can link this to some of the very recent uh, debates and conversations that have been going on that you've been involved in about political polarization. Um, where does your findings from your book place you in, in, in that conversation about whether we are growing ever more polarized or whether polarization actually is something else? Um, where, what can we uh, make of this conversation using your book? Um, so I think... So then there's a couple of different, you know, cleavages among people talking about polarization today, and, and probably two of them are relevant. I mean, one is there's an argument that says, um, look, there's, there might be polarization among members of Congress and other political elites, but um, it's not so much among ordinary voters, right? So this is the dif difference between, uh, say, um, Murphy Arena's book versus um, Abramowitz and Saunders' work. And... Um, I, you know, I think that um, I would agree that most of the polarization is among elites, which would put me in the Fiorina camp. Um, although I do agree that more and more of it has spread further and further into ordinary voters um, over time. I think that's true. But from the point of the view of what this book is, is that, yeah, that not only is that the case, but that's what you'd expect, because that's where all of the interesting action is, is among political elites who are structuring and shaping ideology. And then what has been happening is it gets pushed down into uh, into ordinary voters. The second debate that we hear a lot about when we talk about ideal, about polarization today is, well, is it really polarization or is it something else? And I think the problem there is that we don't really have a good definition of what polarization is anyway. We talk about it and people say, oh, there's polarization. It means everybody hates each other. But there's lots of different ways in which um, we can see something that looks like that and we'd say, oh, that's polarization, but it actually is 
is you know, fundamentally different. And in the book, I talk a little bit about um, a nice uh, uh, article by uh, DiMaggio and, and others uh, back in the 80s where they sort of spelled out several different things that um, polarization could mean. It could mean that uh, the two parties or two groups are just further apart on a dimension. It could mean that um, there's just less variance and less fewer people in the middle, even though um, uh, or there's more variance, there's fewer people in the middle, even though they're not financially further apart, et cetera. Um, and I think what's um, sort of definitely clear is that what has happened is one of the things that they articulate, which is the two groups, in this case Democrats and Republicans, are more clearly distinguished on policy grounds, which is ideology, which in the terms of my book is to say that the coalitions that are defined by ideology and the coalitions that are defined by parties, as recall, you know, as we said earlier, those are two different things. One way of telling you who's on your side and who's not, parties is a different way. Well, now they're giving you the same answer. And that ideology is telling you the if you're a liberal, these are your friends, and these also it's also telling you, and you're a Democrat, and these are your friends, and, and vice versa. Um, same for Republicans and conservatives. Um, and so I think that's what's really happened, and that's consistent, I think, also with what Fiorina call, uh, calls sorting. Although I think you can still just call that polarization. Um, but I think that's the the story, and what's more, that where that happened first is um, among political elites who. One, organ one, one of those ways of organizing things took over and shaped the other one, and that's how we got to where we are with polarization. I wonder if we could take this conversation just briefly, sort of in a, in a slightly different direction, which is to take off your hat for a second of the author, as the author of this book and, and put on your hat as someone who's also taking part in this, this sort of discipline-wide uh, conversation about uh, public engagement. Okay. Um, about, about how much public engagement um, uh, we should put on our own shoulders, uh, how much is appropriate, if it's appropriate, what it should look like. It seems like it relates in some ways to the book in the sense that you're, you're trying to study the, the, the way in which these uh, elite opinions are formed. Political scientists have at times participated very, very actively in that and other times less so. And there's variation across, you know, uh, uh, departments and, and uh, types of um, inquiries. Um, but I wonder for you as someone who blogs and who participates in these, these debates of the day, um, uh, how you think about your own role in, in shaping uh, ideology and, and shaping opinion. Um, do you see yourself as an observation in your book? If someone was to write the same book in 30 years, or, or is the kind of writing you do and commentary you offer somehow different from the um, uh, ideological writers that, that you observe in collecting your data? Well, I definitely think there are political scientists who are uh, or could be observations in a future uh, book like this. And then, indeed, there are political scientists or uh, certainly academics who are um, observations in the book as a stance, right? So one of the key um, dynamics that I talk about in the book is the way, degree in which liberals became liberal on race, and that's driven in large part by a conversation that took place in academia. Um, but, uh, so there definitely are academics who do that. Um, I don't think it's necessary that all academics do that. And I don't think I do that. At least I try not to, um, largely for, for two reasons. One is that, um, I'm not really sure that I have a strong opinion about how we should be reshaping what the ideological coalitions are. Um, my, you know, my own personal politics don't, um, don't, don't sort of jump out. And, I mean, I have some opinions and stuff, but I haven't really, that's not what I think about uh, most of the time. Um, but also because, I think it's useful to have peace, to be able to step up and say, okay, look, regardless of 
what policies I like, regardless of what, um, you know, what, where I would like to see the, the country going, this is how politics works, and everyone should understand it better. And citizens who want to engage in politics should appreciate it better and so forth. And that's a piece of advice that I think, I mean, I, I guess I could selfishly say, oh, I'd only want to share that with people I agree with, right, and that, mm-hmm. that I don't agree with shouldn't have that. But um, I think that, the, the, you know, the republic is more is stronger if more people, you know, engage in politics in a more realistic way. Um, and maybe it's the case that people who I'm inclined to agree with um, have more of a trouble with this. And so I want to you know, encourage them to to see things the right way. So, for instance, I mean, there's a common problem that you see or a common reaction you see from time to time. Where people say, oh, politics is polarized. Both parties are wrong. What do we need to do is we need to form a third party or reshape part of politics in some, in some way, right? So you get Americans elect or no labels or these kinds of organizations that do this. And, um, you know, okay, nifty if that's what, um, if, if you're interested in doing that. But um, I, I think that's a strategy that ultimately doesn't work. And it ultimately doesn't work in part because um, the coalition politics is both necessary, and so you need parties to do that, and then the larger ideological um, organization that takes place isn't just about coalitional politics, it's not just about the parties, so you create a third party, you're not going to make liberalism and conservatism go away, Um, and so I think that citizens would do better to understand how these things play out, and how ideology and uh, and parties, and partisanship in particular, and partisan conflict, and, and so forth, how that works, so that they then are working in the actually like sort of playing the right game. They're not trying to rechange the world and see and make things happen that aren't going to happen. They're actually engaging in the system the way that it works. I think that's an important thing. And so that's where I see sort of my contribution and the contribution of a lot of um, political scientists is to say, look, just let me explain to you how this works. And, you know, it's not enough to say that a political leader, you know, is just force of will will make everything happen, which is something we hear people talking a lot about. And it's not, um, it's not true that there's a vast number of unaligned independents, and it's not true that there are these other things. And if we just people knew that and understood that better, then their engagement in politics would be um, would be better. That said, I don't think there's anything wrong with someone who is trying to you know sort of shape ideology and, and so forth. And you know who knows as scholars get older and, and and move further into their careers, they tend to be more comfortable taking political positions, and that might happen to me too. But at least right now, I more think it's it's we have a lot of people who just don't understand how the game is played, and it would be useful if, for them if they did. Yeah, I, I think the the, um, the the book is just so interesting, um, and, and there's a, uh, so many things that I think scholars of political science can learn from this, um, but I hope that, that uh, the reach uh, of the book and hopefully the reach of the podcast is a little bit broader than that, and some of the ambitions that you just described are, are met through it, um, because I think that there's just so much that can be learned. Again, Hans's book... Uh, Political Ideologies and Political Parties in America. It's published by Cambridge University Press as a part of their Cambridge Studies in Public Opinion and Political Psychology. Uh, the book is available at Cambridge University Press website. Hans, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks for having me. This was fun. <laughs>